Thanks, Andrew. Good morning, everyone. My name's Tim. I'm the Senior Minister at St John's. And yes, if you do have your Bibles there, please do have it open uh, as we look at it together. Uh, about uh, this time last year, I was doing a course uh, in the city and uh, I was chatting with one of the other uh, participants in the course who happened to work for uh, a multinational mining company. And I'm not sure how the conversation got to this point, possibly because I mentioned to her that I was a minister and sometimes that leads to deeper conversation quickly. Sometimes it just stops conversation full stop. Uh, But in this case, she was sharing with me quite openly about how she was travelling for work in South America a few years back when um, armed gunmen stormed the complex in which they were working and she spent 48 hours with her colleagues locked up in a small room as these gunmen held them captive uh, and placed certain demands on the company uh, for money. She was very frightened. She didn't think she might uh, see her children or her family again. And needless to say, it was a pretty traumatic experience for her. Even a few years on, as she spoke to me, the emotion sort of was very much overwhelming her as she told the story. Eventually she was released, she was set free, and she was able to to go. Now I hope you've never had such a situation in your work. (laughs) It's not familiar to us personally, uh, in most cases, to experience something like that. It's more the sort of thing that we we see in the movies. Um, So, you know, you get movies like Ransom with Mel Gibson when his family gets taken uh, hostage and money is demanded of him. Or a couple of years ago, you had the movie with Tom Hanks' Captain Phillips where he was the captain on a ship and the ship was hijacked and the ship and its contents and its crew were held to ransom for millions of dollars. So even if we haven't experienced it, this sort of situation is familiar to us where people are held in captivity uh, uh, for some reason and the only way out is through a payment, uh, a ransom, needs to be paid in order to redeem them, to let them go free. There was a similar situation in the ancient world where slavery still existed and was legal. So if you were someone living in that world and you got yourself uh, into debt and you couldn't pay your bills, you couldn't simply declare yourself bankrupt and be released from your obligations. Your only option was to sell yourself into slavery so you would become the property of someone else and work for them as their slave. They would own you and you would do work um, in order to meet these obligations that you hadn't been able to pay. And the only way that you were able to be released from slavery is if you somehow could acquire enough money, but more likely a relative of yours would pay a ransom or a price of redemption to release you from slavery, to set you free. We're continuing uh, today this series uh, because of the cross and uh, through this series we're looking at what Jesus achieved for us through the cross. Uh, last week I described uh, looking at the cross a kind, of, kind of like looking at a diamond, uh, a precious diamond. And uh, the Bible uses different words, different images, different language to describe the cross, all of which are describing one thing, the cross and what it achieves. 
but you can look at it in different ways, kind of like looking at a precious diamond, which looking at it in different ways, you see the richness and the beauty of it uh, by coming at it from these different angles. So last week, as Andrew said, we looked at uh, Jesus uh, taking our judgment. The language was of drinking the cup for us, the cup of God's wrath, so that God's anger was turned away from us because Jesus bore it in our place. This week we take a different angle and use a different biblical image, the language of slavery and the need for redemption or for a ransom to be paid for us. So uh, today, uh, in our Bible reading, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 18, we uh, heard these words, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. That word redeemed could be translated ransomed and is in some other Bible translations. And as this image, this theme, these words, redemption and ransom that I want us to look at today. And I want to approach it through a series of questions. The first question that we need to ask is, what do we need to be set free from? Or to put it another way, what is it that we were enslaved to that we needed redeeming in the first place? Now, this is sort of a challenging concept because we think of ourselves very much as free people. We live in a free country and freedom is something that we hold very, very strongly to. So how can the Bible say that we are enslaved to something and in need of redemption in the first place? But that's exactly what the Bible does say. Uh, not that we are enslaved to something physical. It's not a physical enslavement as if we have sort of physical chains on our wrist or uh, people holding us captive like that woman in the course. Our enslavement, our problem is a spiritual one rather than a physical one. Now, the problem, the Bible says, is that sin holds us in slavery. The fact that we've rejected God as our rightful ruler, the fact that we seek to live our own way rather than his way, puts us in a state of slavery from which we need to be set free. So if you look at a variety of these passages on redemption from the Bible, you see this coming out quite clearly. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we read, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14 is similar. Again, speaking of Jesus, it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In both of those passages, the forgiveness of sin is a parallel with redemption. That is, we are redeemed from sin or slavery to sin. Our passage this morning from 1 Peter put it slightly differently. We read these words. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. What's he speaking about there? Um, to speak of an empty way of life is to speak of a life that is, is futile or meaningless. And that sort of language was the sort of language which was often used in the Old Testament to speak of idolatry. That is, worshipping and serving other gods rather than the true God himself. 
Now, in the ancient world, that took the form of worshipping silver, gold, wooden statues, idols. Uh, in our modern world, we still have idols. They're just more subtle. Uh, things like money, uh, success, sport, fame. You can probably think of other things uh, that might be idols in our culture. The key, if you're trying to work out what is or isn't an idol, I think the key to identifying an idol is asking these questions. What do we love? What do we trust in? And what do we serve? Because the Bible's quite clear that God should be the object, the primary object of our love, our trust, and our service. So if we love something else more than God, if we trust in something else for our security and for our identity rather than God, and if we spend more time and energy serving something else rather than serving God, then it's probably an idol. And, and Peter says this is an empty way of life because it doesn't offer us real life in the way that God does. And in the end, that these sorts of idols which we seek to serve can actually be very cruel and demanding masters. You only need to think about people who are chasing the Australian dream. You know, they want that house with the, the big television and so they mortgage themselves to the hilt and then they're enslaved to pay off that mortgage. Um, maybe, you know, they've gone into this, uh, then they have kids and although one of the parents really wants to stay home and look after the kids, they can't afford to because the mortgage is hanging over their heads and they have to work more and more hours in order to pay it off. Uh, there are things that we think of as being our freedom and part of how we live in our culture which actually enslave us and tie us down. Uh, Peter also describes this not only as an empty way of life, but a way of life handed down to us from our ancestors. In other words, this way of life is normal for us. Uh, normal in the sense that we just do what we see other people doing, the way that our parents or grandparents did things, the way that our school friends or our work colleagues do things, uh, the way that the world around us does it. I think it's for that very reason that it sort of seems normal and is very common that we don't think of ourselves as slaves to sin or slaves to these idols. I was chatting with a guy at a Christian conference a few years ago. He himself wasn't a Christian. He'd just come along to the conference to check it out with a friend, which was fantastic. But his sticking point with Christianity, the thing that stopped him wanting to be a Christian, was his knowledge that to become a Christian you had to make Jesus the Lord, Jesus the boss of your life. And he didn't want that. He said, he said to me, I'm my own boss. Nobody will ever be my Lord. I will never serve anybody. But the reality is he already was. All of us serve something. Um, and if it's not God, it's something else. In the words of... Uh, rock and roll rebel Bob Dylan. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Everybody serves something. It's just a question of what it is. And if it's not God that we're serving, then the truth is that we're slaves 
to sin. Now that's a pretty offensive thing to say. Uh, possibly you're offended now to speak of uh, being enslaved to sin if you're someone who's not serving God. But that's precisely what Jesus himself said and offended people in exactly that same way. Jesus was having a conversation with some people. This is in John chapter 8. And he said, If you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, the people he was speaking to hated it, and they said, We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, that might be really hard for us to hear and to believe. And I think the main reason that we find this hard to hear and to believe and to understand is because of what we think freedom actually is. Freedom in our society is often defined as the power or the right to act, speak or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. That's a pretty common dictionary definition, if you like, of freedom. Freedom is about doing what I want to do. Freedom is about following my passions, my desires. Uh, freedom is about being myself and not letting other people stop me constrain me or hinder me. Uh, a less dictionary definition, uh, to quote a very famous naval captain, Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean, wherever we want to go, we go. That's what a ship is, you know. It's not just a keel and hull and a deck and sails. That's what a ship needs. But what a ship is, what the black pearl really is, is freedom. To go where we want to go, to do whatever we want to do, that is freedom. It only takes a little bit of reflection to realise that there's a problem with this sort of definition of freedom as commonly adopted in our culture. What happens when my exercise of freedom actually causes harm to other people? Or what about when my pursuit of freedom, doing what I want to do, actually somehow hinders your freedom or constrains what you want to do? So we speak often about freedom of speech, don't we? That people should be free to say what they want to say. But what about if the views that I want to articulate are racist or sexist or the words that I speak incite other people to violence? Should I be free to speak them. You start to see the complexity, actually, around this definition of freedom, and that's speaking about harm to other people, but what about if the things that I want to do, the things that I'm free to do, don't harm other people, but are actually harmful to myself and aren't the best for me? I'm, I'm free to smoke. I'm free to do drugs. I'm free to car surf. I'm free to eat an entire bucket of KFC for dinner every single night if I want to. I'm free to binge drink every Friday night. I could do any of those things potentially without harming anybody else. 
So shouldn't I be free to do them? And by doing those things, am I actually free? Perhaps this next picture captures it pretty well, I think. Is that what freedom looks like? What does it really mean to be free? Is it really just about doing whatever I want to do? See, the, the fish leaping out of the tack, uh, tank, freedom, get out of the constraints of the fishbowl and the water and really live life is a sure path to death. And that's why Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's why Peter says this is an empty way of life. If we're merely following our passions and our desires, thinking that we're free, we're actually enslaved by those passions and desires. We're serving other things rather than the true God who made us. And we are in need of redemption. We need to be set free. So the next question is, what price must be paid to set us free? It's an important question because often redemption is a bit of a jargon word for Christians. We use it uh, a lot of the time. And uh, we use it in the sort of sense where it just means rescue or deliverance. We have the picture that, yes, we might be in chains, but God busts in like John Rambo, smashes the chains and releases us. But the biblical language of redemption, the way the word redemption was used at that time is business language. When you heard redemption or ransom being used in a passage like 1 Peter as a first reader of the New Testament, you would know that it's speaking about a price that needs to be paid. There needs to be some sort of transaction here in order for the ransom or redemption to take place. There is a price that must be paid. So what's the price? Again, look at some of these passages through the New Testament. Uh, Jesus himself speaking in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Our passage from 1 Peter probably puts it most powerfully of all. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Money can't buy our freedom. There's not enough gold or silver in the world that could pay the price that needs to be paid. We don't think of gold and silver as perishable things. It's an unusual term. But in the, in the scheme of eternity, those things just don't last and they don't cut it and they won't pay the price. It is only Jesus giving himself, his life, his own precious blood, all speaking about his sacrifice on the cross, which pays the ransom price for us. On the cross... Jesus secures our release from captivity, but it comes at a cost as he sheds his blood and gives his life in our place. The language being used here is the language of substitution. Now, we're very familiar with the idea of substitutes. They run 
onto the footy field all the time. If someone is injured and cannot continue playing a game of footy, what happens? A substitute comes on and takes their place. And you sometimes see this sort of thing in a hostage or a ransom situation, the context in which we're speaking about. So you might remember about 10 years ago, an Australian engineer by the name of David Wood was uh, kidnapped in Iraq and he was held captive. And at the time, Australia's leading Muslim cleric, Imam Sheikh Al-Halali, actually offered himself in exchange for David Wood. He said, you let David Wood go and I will be the prisoner in his place instead. It was a brave and generous act. It wasn't taken up um, and Wood was later released by the terrorists. But he offered himself in exchange as a substitute for Wood, the captive. Now, I wonder whether he would have offered to do it if he had have known that by going and swapping with Douglas Wood, it was guaranteed that he would have been killed in his place. That's precisely what Jesus does, isn't it? The price of this ransom is his own precious blood. And Jesus does it not just for one person, but for many people. In fact, he does it for anyone who wants it, including you and me. Stuck in our slavery to sin, we can't free ourselves, but Jesus takes our place. Jesus gives his life in exchange for us. Because of the cross, Jesus sets us free. So that just leaves us with one last question. And that's the question, what does it look like to be free? We've already seen that uh, so-called freedom, living independently of God, following our own desires, our own passions, our own idols, um, means that we're actually enslaved to sin rather than truly free. Uh, we may feel like we're free, but like the goldfish, we're actually on a sure path to death. It's only Jesus who can pay the ransom and set us free. Now, you may be someone here today who has never entrusted your life to Jesus. I may have offended you very badly today by describing you as a slave, a slave to sin. Uh, my desire is not to offend, uh, but my desire actually is to speak the truth this morning. Because as, as Jesus himself says, the truth will set you free. We need to hear truth in order to be set free. And if you'd like to talk more about it with me, I'd be only too happy to talk further about it. But maybe you're here and you haven't been so much offended by what I've said that it's really resonated with your heart because in your own life you are actually very conscious of the enslaving power of sin in your life, that you, you feel like your current life and your lifestyle is empty. You're aware of a real need in your life and you long to be free. Well, the great news is you can be. Jesus' death on the cross pays the ransom, the entire ransom, to set you free. And there's nothing else that is needed except to receive Christ, to give your life to him. You can do that today. But if you do that, what does it look like? And for those who are here this morning who are already followers of Jesus, what does it look like to be free? See, John again, uh, sorry, Jesus again in, in John 8 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
The sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The Christian life is not about slavery, the Christian life is about freedom. It's about living freely. Um, But freedom is not about doing whatever we want to do. Freedom is about doing what we were made to do. And freedom is about being who we were made to be. Again, if you think about the fish, the fish is only free when the fish is acting in accordance with its fishness. Um, Namely, it's it's only free when it's in the water, isn't it? Uh, Living out the freedom of a fish as it was made to live. Well, it's the same for us. True human freedom is only found when we live in accordance with our humanness, with the way that God created us and made us to be. Uh, Namely, living in right relationship with God who made us. Living in right relationship with people that God made us to live with and living in right relationship with our world. That's what it means to be human, to be in relationship with God, with other people and our world. So as the writer David Bentley Hart puts it, this means we are free not merely because we can choose, but only when we have chosen well. We are free not merely because we can choose, but only when we have chosen well. And paradoxically, true freedom freedom is actually found in service. True freedom is found serving Jesus as our Lord and Master. So in the next chapter of 1 Peter, having laid out how Jesus redeems us, ransoms us by his precious blood, Peter goes on in chapter 2 to write these words, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. That's radical, isn't it, (laughs) to describe free living as living as God's slaves. Jesus sets us free, but he wants us to live and to keep on living as free people, which means following him and living God's way, which is where true freedom is found and the way that life works best. And true Christian freedom is actually radically countercultural, and it does stand in marked contrast to the way everyone around us is living, which Peter describes as an empty way of life. So as a follower of Jesus, you are free. You are free to be generous. You're free to use your time and your money for God's mission in the world rather than be bound up by accumulating more wealth and needing to have that there as your security in life to trust in that bank account or that money that is stored away for you. Uh, Followers of Jesus uh, are free to stop, to invest in relationship with God and with people, rather than to be enslaved by busyness, one of the biggest enslaving powers of our culture, racking up hours and hours at work, driving our kids to more and more extracurricular activities, filling every waking hour in order to be efficient and productive. We're free to do it because our identity and worth comes from who we are, not by what we do. We don't find our meaning and our identity uh, in our position at work or in what other people perceive us to be. 
I could go on, but you, I hope you see that true freedom actually affects every area of life and should make us look very different from those around us. The Anglican prayer book has a prayer called The Collect for Peace, which uh, many of you would have prayed many times in your Christian life. And the start of the prayer goes like this. O God, the author and lover of peace, in knowledge of whom stands our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. Whose service is perfect freedom. It's a seemingly paradoxical phrase, isn't it? But it sums it up so well. If we want perfect freedom, it is only found as we serve God. If we want perfect freedom, it is only found as we look to God for our meaning, for our purpose, for our identity, and for our way to do life as we were designed and created to be. That's where true freedom and real life is found. So let me pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have set us free. We thank you that you were willing to shed your precious blood to ransom us, to redeem us, to free us from being enslaved to idols and to sin. Help us to live as free people. Help us to find our true freedom in your service. Help us to live our lives in ways which are radically different because they are the true way that you want us to live. We ask that you would help us to find perfect freedom in service of you and we ask it in your name. Amen.